I'm excited today to be joined on the Appeal Political Report by Juliet Hooker, who is a political theorist and a professor of political science at Brown University. And she has studied black political thought, reaction to protests, and racial justice, among other topics. Over the past week, while seeing images of George Floyd's killing by a Minneapolis police officer and its aftermath, I've kept thinking about her essay, Black Lives Matter, and the paradoxes of U.S. black politics, which I had read years ago and which really provides some very interesting concepts and arguments with which to think about the Black Lives Matter movement and about the strategies and perceptions of protest. So I reached out to her this week to discuss the events of the past week. So in your 2016 article, you suggest that before we even discuss what forms of protests are justified or efficient, we need to first understand that there are disparities in who and what gets labeled violent to start with. And you call this an asymmetrical vulnerability to being perceived as violent. So how do you analyze the events of the past week in light of that idea? So I think that there are various ways in which we can think about that idea of who is prone to being viewed already as violent and who is not irrespective of their actions. What we've seen in the protest against the killing of George Floyd is that the actions by protesters when there have been instances of looting or of property being burned or, you know, stat Confederate statues being graffitied, etc. But these have been seen as, as viewed as violent and as aggressive acts that are outside of what is viewed as the norm for you know, a civil protest. Whereas the actions by the police are viewed as justified. Even when we see instances such as police cars ramming into protesters who are just standing there. There have been so many reports of police pepper spraying, protesters who were not doing anything, or beating them with batons, etc. So these actions, which are clearly violent aren't viewed because they're coming from agents of the state who are thought to have a monopoly on violence. And one way to understand this in particular in, in these current protests is that they're also harking back to racialized views of Black people, Black men in particular, as prone to violence, right, that begin during the period of slavery and that continue to this day, right, when you think about Ferguson and the Michael Brown shooting and this idea that white police officers always fall back on that there was this monstrous, scary black man who was menacing them and that's why they, they shot them irrespective of what the person is doing. So what I'm wondering about here is, is your thoughts on the processes, the, the social processes, the linguistic processes that you see as going into the production of these perceptions. And to the extent that it's a matter of language or media frames, how do different publics perceive these events differently, especially given media fragmentation and social media? What we're looking at now are, of course, these viral videos and also, right, the sort of live cable news coverage where you have reporters sort of, you know, contemporaneously narrating what's happening. And I think one of the, the interesting things to think about here is that one of the solutions that has been put forward for 
excessive use of force by the police has been the use of body cameras. But I think what we see when we look at the videos is that there is no way to guarantee that people will see the same thing. People still look at these videos and see them through the lenses of their own racialized views of the world. When you think about, for example, the videos of you know, Eric Garner, the one of George Floyd, many um, of those who are predisposed to defend the police are gonna focus on, well, they comply with police demands, they comply quickly enough. Even in, in the cases in which people have been shot in the back, it's like, well, they looked like they were running away. Why didn't they turn, why didn't they do X, Y, and Z? One of the things that we need to step back and think about is that there's a level of interpretation that's happening with any of these images and that we are bringing everything that we know about the world to that interpretation. The media also plays a role in this. The way in which headlines or articles will, for example, talk about protesters as, as active agents, right? Use the active voice to say they were looting or they were rioting or they were setting fires, as opposed to the way in which they describe the killing of unarmed Black people by the police. And it'll be like somebody like George Floyd died in police custody. Died. Who did it? Nobody's identified as the person who did it. The media reluctance almost to identify the police as anything but neutral is a problem for understanding what's happening. Because one of the different things about these protests is that they're protesting against the police. When the protest is against the police itself, how do we expect the police not to um, have a kind of emotional investment or kind of reaction to the protesters. And so we interpret their actions as if they're neutral, but they're actually also a participant in this very thing that they're then being told to manage. Your essay also analyzes what you call expectations of respectability and exemplarity that African Americans who are looking to resist racial injustice are met with. And I'm going to read a sentence from your essay here. And I quote, when other citizens and state institutions betray a lack of care and concern for black suffering, which in turn makes it impossible for those wrongs to be redressed, is it fair to ask blacks to enact appropriate democratic politics? So how has this dynamic manifested itself in the Black Lives Matter movement? When Black Lives Matter, I think, first emerged and, and you had the protests in Ferguson and then the protests for the killing of Freddie Gray in Baltimore, right? There were a lot of critiques um, from white observers, but also some black leaders from the civil rights generation, even President Obama, right? Um, and there were a number of people who criticized them for not adhering to the, what they saw as the script of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, right? They weren't sort of the well-dressed, uh, very uh, disciplined protesters who did not engage in any kind of violence, no matter how much they were provoked or hurt by the police. There's this sense in which Black Lives Matter doesn't live up to that, right, that frame. I think we have a mistaken romantic recollection and public memory of the civil rights movement that actually is shaping the way in which we respond to contemporary movements, but that is in fact misremembering 
what happened right in the 1960s, which is that at the time, right, people like MLK, right, were called outside agitators. People responded to civil rights demonstrators and argued that they were creating conflict, that they were creating racial strife, that they were doing a lot of the things of which we now accuse contemporary Black Lives Matter protesters of. I think we see the way in which this misreading of the history of Black protests particularly the civil rights movement, is then applied as the standard against which they are, they're judged and, and judged to not be succeeding. You still have the sense of like, well, why is there violence? Why can't people just be nonviolent? Why can't they maintain the same kind of civil disobedience that the civil rights movement did? I'd love to hear more from you on, on this misreading of the past and the misreading of the 1960s. And maybe more broadly, you've also worked extensively on the history of Black political thought and on earlier figures such as Frederick Douglass. And he also had to navigate questions about the proper strategies to employ. So how did the figures you have worked on think through some of these questions? You know, this is a really important point to keep in mind, which is that there has actually been a long tradition in Black politics of thinking about how to do protests, what is um, most effective. And one of the interesting things that, that we see is that from the very beginning, there isn't this kind of clear distinction between, let's say, civil and uncivil forms of protest, right? Between violence and nonviolence as two completely opposite things. For example, if you begin with slavery, abolitionists, Black abolitionists, Black fugitives were literally committing a crime by running away. They were stealing themselves. It was illegal, right, for a slave to flee. And so the idea that engaging in political action for the sake of Black freedom and Black life had to adhere to what was the law of the land could not work when the law was racist. And even in the 1960s, if you think about those protests as well, there were ways in which methods were employed, like things like curfews, things like refusing to give permits to protest and, and people going ahead and protesting anyway, even though it was um, declared illegal, there is a way in which this has always been something that Black thinkers have had to grapple with, right? That you have to think about what is going to be effective. Here's the, the issue, right? If you are asking people to engage in civil disobedience, the point of engaging in civil disobedience is to show that you respect the norms, the democratic norms of the society in which you live, but you're, you think some things are unjust and need to be changed. But if you're in a system where you are not afforded the same rights of citizenship, even to this day, in which there have been, continue to be killing of Black people by the police with impunity, and there seems to be no way to address that either electorally or through lawsuits or through all the other forms of activism, then saying that you shouldn't protest violently, well, it's like, what other forms of um, redress are there? If the system is fundamentally unjust, then part of the critique is precisely that there needs to be 
radical transformation. I mean, if you think about the 1960s, right, what people were asking for wasn't something minor. It was a major change in how a large part of the country was organized. And so we have to grapple with the fact that what racial justice requires is always going to be controversial and difficult and is not easily achieved through some of the, the, you know, the sort of more established forms of political activism. And on this point, earlier this spring, we saw protests against shutdowns that, that in Michigan at least featured people with weapons coming to the Capitol. So how do you analyze reactions to that? Right, so I think that um, one important difference between the, the anti-lockdown protests is that they were mostly or almost universally, right, white protesters. And one of the, I think the key issues here is that one of the things that shapes the ability of, um, or the perception of black protest is this, you know, the inability to express black anger. So if you think about the notion that anger at injustice is justified, right? But black anger has been seen as dangerous. It has been seen as, as something to be feared. And so even when protesting injustice, and even when it's something that you should be angry about, somehow there's always an expectation that black, black people can't show anger because that will alienate white support, that will make them seem unreasonable, this is going to, you know, not create sympathy for your cause. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that that same constraint isn't necessarily placed on, on white protesters, as we saw with the anti-lockdown protests, right? You know, there are these, these guys who not, it's not simply anger, but who are actually showing up with guns and who are nevertheless treated um, with respect, who are not, um, are not killed. And the contrast between that and then the overreaction, the use of um, excessive force by the police to counter protest peaceful protesters who are trying to protest um, these acts of state violence is really glaring. And I think it comes back to this idea of who is allowed to to show anger at perceived, and in the case of the, I think, the anti-lockdown protesters at perceived restraints on their rights. This goes back to the ways in which, you know, in U.S. society, the notion of, of who has the right to be a full human being, right, to express anger, to have an expectation that your needs and your, um, your interests as a citizen will be at the forefront of the political agenda that that's reflected in in these very the asymmetrical reaction to these two protests and also the fact that grievances that are driving them are so normatively different i want to ask you about the one final idea from your 2016 essay it's that you write about an economy of suffering the argument is that U.S. society requires of Black people that they suffer and display their suffering in order to get redress. Could you say more on what you mean by economy of suffering? So what do you mean by that is to say that 
the U.S. remains, right, to make a, a very obvious point, a society that's shaped by racial hierarchy and racial inequality and, and racism. What happens in these situations in which, right, you have these instances of clear racial harm and racial injustice is that nevertheless, it's not seen as the, um, the responsibility of everyone in society necessarily to protest against, against police violence, right? So it becomes then the task of Black people who are already the ones who are suffering police violence to go out and put themselves in harm's way um, and put themselves in danger of further aggression by the police in order to try to end this problem. So there is loss upon loss in the context of the pandemic where protesting also is putting these um, folks who are out there demanding justice possibly at risk of infection. It's as if we're literally asking people to die for democracy, to die for the sake of making this a, a society that lives up to its um, its stated commitments to, to equal rights for all. Part of, of what I'm trying to get at by talking about this economy of suffering is this idea that it's those who are already vulnerable, those who are already um, um, suffering injustice who need to go and protest those injustices and seek um, change. But it also gets at another issue, which is the fact that we require these images of black death, of you know, some sort of seemingly incontrovertible moment in the case of George Floyd, that video of the of the officer who is, you know, literally standing on his neck, that that is what we require in order to be mobilized. What is required is are these scenes over and over again of black pain, of black death, of, you know, of black suffering in order to maybe move people to feel some sort of care and concern for these forms of injustice. And that in itself is something that takes a toll on people. I also think that the pandemic has exposed some of the deep structural and racial inequalities within the United States. We have been in a situation which over 100,000 people have died in the United States and people have been dealing with these losses, both loss of life, loss of jobs for some, loss of human contact. The U.S. is at a moment, I think, where there's a lot of of folks who are wondering whether the system is working and who is it working for. One question for me, thinking about um, where we go from here, is trying to think about what comes of this. Where do people go and whether it's possible to, to really sustain a kind of broad, multiracial, cross-class, coalition that is really going to try to address questions of um, police violence, racial injustice. Well, that sounds like an interesting question to end on. Um, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you.